Hello and welcome to the Zenial Dome. I'm Gareth Gwynn. And I'm Esther Sears. And this is the podcast for Zenials. Or people who aspire to be like us, Zenials. Well, let's explain what a Zenial is. In case you're new to the show, it's someone who was born between 1977 and 1985. So that's someone who couldn't get to school during the last petrol crisis and who couldn't get to work during this one. I think that's the defining feature. <laughs> that's when I felt the most Zenial this week, certainly. It's coming full circle, isn't it? To the point where I feel a two two fuel crises. Does that mean we have to die now? <laughs> I was in school. You were at university. You and our producer was in work. He is also a zenial because uh, those at the older end of the bracket would have been working by the year two thousand if you'd been born in. Uh, yeah, seventy seven. Yeah, so finally you've got some independence. You've got some of your own money coming in. And then you're having to ask your parents for a lift into work. Yeah. <laughs> or siphoning petrol from their car in the night. One of those one of those two things. So our guest on this episode is the wonderful DJ Hugh Stevens. And I'm so excited that we managed to get him on. He he's just brilliant. He is, and he's also someone who not only is a Zenial, but probably uh influenced and affected the careers of so many Zenials by being a DJ in his well, I think he started on Radio 1 at 17, as we cover, and so was playing the music of the people who were exactly his age during the time uh, that he was at Radio 1. We should say, we actually recorded this. I mean, it was days before his final show on Radio 1, wasn't it? Yeah, so there are some references to him about to leave, or what he'll do when he'll leave, um, just in case people are worried that we've gone back in time or something. Yeah. So that, uh, that, that'll clear <laughs> that up. It was so lovely to speak to Hugh. Um, it's really interesting. And there's loads of like little surprises as well as to stuff that he was into as a kid other than music. This is 1981 and TV and radio's Hugh Stevens. <laughs> Oh, no, I'm very proud to be, at the time of recording, 39. Very proud. I think any any older you get, the more proud you should be. I'm not, you know... I mean, it might be different when I turn 50. We'll wait and see. But um, <laughs> as I approach 40, I'm very happy to still be here and to still be, you know, uh, doing stuff. I, I can't identify with this at all. <laughs> like, not at all, because we're the same age and I'm... Very fearful of 40. <laughs> Are you? Yeah. I just, I just, to be honest, I know so many cool older people, you know, like my mum and my uncles and aunties. I'm like, oh, you know, they're like, my mum's 82, you know? It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, 40's going to be great. It's going to be fine. It's just part of the journey, in it? So, it is. Maybe I just need to surround myself with cooler people. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, you've revealed your age there now, you, and it means that you fall neatly into this senial bracket. So you were born in May 1981, two months younger than me, and two years older than Gareth. Right, OK. So are you familiar with the term senial? No, I wasn't actually, no. Um, obviously, the year you were born is something that you're stuck with for the rest of your life, isn't it? So you get to know, you know, who was the prime minister when you were born. I know that Adam and the ants were number one when I was born, which, you know, in, like now I think of Adam and the ants as like an old band who were around before I was born. But, you know, they were there. And um, 
Yeah, it's interesting when you hear the year that you were born brought up in historical context, like, oh, you know, Bowie released this in 1981, or, you know, the President of the United States was, was this person in 1981. Oh, my God, that's happened when I was born, that kind of thing. Mm. So um, it's, it's a weird one. But no, I didn't know the phrase Zenial, to be honest. What does it mean? <clears throat> The era is meant to be 1977 to 1985. And basically, they're the ones who grew up in the move from analogue to digital. Ah, okay, So you remember vinyl when it was the only thing, then not cool, (laughs) and then cool. I think you've seen the... (laughs) Yeah, I remember the journey. Yeah, I'd go to HMV and buy 99 pieces of vinyl just because Mm. I wanted to have it, not because it was cool, Mm. like a cool format. Right, it all makes sense now. So that's it. Okay, yeah, it explains a lot, really, because I'm not a Luddite when it comes to technology, but I'm very much kind of stick with what you know until somebody tells you different. Uh, I didn't get a mobile phone till I was 18. You don't go searching for these things then? They kind of come to you? Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. They come to me, yeah. Like, for example, I've always dreamt and thought, oh, the dream is doing the radio show from your own house. But I thought, that, that's impossible, right? Because technology's expensive and you'd have to get ISDN lines and, you know, there'd be a lot of forms to fill. And then, obviously, COVID, when it happened, meant that everyone was doing radio shows from their house. Um, with one, All I needed was a microphone and my laptop. Yeah, suddenly it all became very possible, didn't it? It was all... Yeah. Yeah, all you need is, you're right, a microphone, a laptop and a sort of constant patrol of your house telling everyone in it to shut up. <laughs> and then you're, you're done. You're raring to go. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. So before we get going properly, we need to find out if you if you really are a zenial with what we've got are some quickfire questions, which we hope will sort of sort out who we're dealing with. Okay. Um, do you still have a Hotmail.com email account? my only email account oh excellent there we go (laughs) and i'm very proud of my hotmail account and if you meet somebody else and they go i'm a hotmail.com user as well it's like a confession isn't it no i love it it's reliable it's it's full it's got like thousands of emails that i'll never read again but i don't want to delete in there i love it good i use mine for spam actually you know when you have to sign up for something and you have to give your email address and you know you're never going to read them i use my hotmail.com so i checked last night to see how many emails i've got there there's only there's over seventy thousand emails in there that i haven't read and will never read Oh, there's, there's a lot of uh, companies that are really relying on one day the Gareth who uses Hotmail to, to come back with his credit card and, and let rip. <laughs> I can do that, though, Essis. What if there's emails in the middle of the, all the junk saying, oh, by the way, we want to offer you a job or a million quid or a free car? What if you miss that email? Come on now, there won't be. <laughs> so, I'm not living in a film. I would say all, all that email account will be is people offering you a lot of money if you hand over your yes. credit card details. That's yes. all SS email will be at this point. <laughs> and maybe the odd Viagra offer. <laughs> Always <laughs> those. Always, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hand. I feel after that hotmail answer, like I have no other questions, Your Honour. It's like, <laughs> I reckon you, yeah, I reckon you can call yourself a Zenial. Cool. I mean, I think you're you're always going to have variations in there and some trends will pass some people by. But yeah, I think 
I think you bleed, Samuel. Oh, cool. Who's <laughs> yeah. Daniel Stevens? I like it. To be honest, it's nice. It's like being part of a group that I never knew existed, but it all makes sense now. I feel yeah. relieved almost. Because I thought, oh, you know, you look at Instagram and you think, oh, well, I'm not part of the Insta generation. And you look at... Um, you know, 50-year-olds, and you think, oh, you know, I missed out on all those great bands because I was 10 years older, younger than them or whatever. But I'm, I feel, I do feel relieved now that I'm part of this group. Having worked at Radio 1, were there sort of battle lines drawn between the generations in any way? Was it like Generation Xs, Xennials, Millennials, or was it all more of a mulch? I think it was all more of a mulch because Radio 1, um, as I've learned recently, is very good at moving people on. When they get too, um, <laughs> too, uh, too stuck in a not stuck in a rut. I wouldn't say that. Um, but when I think you know, you've got to keep things fresh and you've got to keep things relevant to the audience. You know, and so if you remember you two singles being bought in Boots for ninety nine p, then you probably shouldn't be there. You know, I mean, but of course, AJ nothing but a number. You know, because um, I mean, you know, you look at um, a a broadcasting legend like Annie Nightingale who um, has been at Radio 1 for like 40 years or something and you know it's just uh, always on her on her A game and always looking for like new sounds and is a real champion and real understanding of youth culture and of um, of like interesting sounds that are going to have a cultural impact and so um, yeah Radio 1 you know a lot different DJs from different uh ages and different age groups always but at the same time um everybody interested in music and everybody interested in uh, kind of youth culture and so that would be the kind of glue that would bring everybody together i suppose (laughs) not making it sound too cheesy but it's it's true you know like i'd I'd meet um i met john peel and i met um uh, so many DJs that were older than me. I mean, I was 17 when I started, so everybody was older than me at Radio <laughs> 1, you know. But even like when you talk to DJs who are 10 or 20 or 30 years older than you, because they were so brilliant at what they did, you never thought about their age. Um, so, you'd, you know, you'd look at Fab and Groove Rider and you'd think, you know, peerless drum and bass DJs. You didn't go somebody who's 10, 15 years older than me or whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um because you so, mentioned there that you were 17. Um, are we right in thinking that they read your A-level results out on radio? Yeah, I did. Me and my friend oh. Tom came up from Cardiff to London and we opened up, yeah, we opened up our A-levels. To be honest, though, I was in free flow by then. I didn't really care what I was going to get from A-levels because <laughs> I just got a year's contract with Radio 1. So it's like, yeah, I'll open them up. And um, I got a B... CB, but because I was um, dedicated to being a professional broadcaster, I quickly switched it to BBC uh, on Radio One, and they were like, "Yay!" And um, it was Zoe Ball presenting it uh, that year. Essex. It was Zoe Ball in for Scott Mills on the on the pro- no, no, hang on, sorry, it was the other way around. It was Scott Mills in for Zoe Ball. So yeah, it was Scott Mills, and you know, yeah, it was, it was um, lovely, exciting thing to do. Oh, but po- your poor friend Tom, though, being dragged up to, to London yeah. with. You. Yeah, Tom didn't mind something. Tom was a, was an adventurer as well, and you know, saw nothing in um, you know, you know, just right up for an adventure. We got to stay in a hotel for a night, and you know, we went to a gig and we went to the pub, and um, 
although to, uh, not to drink, obviously, because we were only 17. Obviously but, not. But we were turning 18. We were turning 18, so, yeah, so um, it was... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was a fun thing to do. We read an article that reported on it at the time and it said that you'd put plans to study a degree on hold because of your Radio 1 job. So we were just wondering now that you're leaving Radio 1, is that what you're going on to do? Are you going to finish your degree? (laughs) Well, yeah, I thought about it, to be honest, because um, I've always had things. I never went to university. I, I wouldn't say it's a chip on my shoulder, but um, I, I've always had an, uh, a, a what if. What if I'd have gone to Bangor University to do that media course, you know? Uh, what if um, I'd have gone to Leeds to do something else? I don't know. I've always thought, what if? But, I mean, yeah, I, I only joined Radio 1 for a year. And that year, you know, like all contracts tend to do, they just get, ex- you know, if you're lucky, they get extended, don't they, bit by bit. And I ended up being there for 21 years. But, um, sorry, I never went to uni. Um, so I went, when all my friends left Cardiff, I, I basically lived like a student in Cardiff. So I lived in a flat above Peter Express on High Street <laughs> and I'd go to a gig practically every night and just have a lovely time going to gigs, really. <laughs> so I've got nothing to complain about. I consider myself very lucky. And no debt as well. I think that's the uh, the key one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no debt. I was lucky with that. I feel like so, we had we we lived parallel lives because we're the same age. And I went to uni in Cardiff, so we you were obviously doing uh, your thing, and I was doing my thing at the same time and taking completely different economic courses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was um, it was such a weird one, like. You know, I was doing my A-levels. I was planning to go to uni to do uh, media studies. My ideal job, wanting to be a radio producer at some point in the future. And then, you know, ended up getting this show with Radio 1. It was the session in Wales with Beth and Alvin. And um, I remember going to the first Radio 1 Christmas party um, that we got invited to. And, I mean, I was 18, so... You know, I just got really, really drunk on free booze <laughs> with like John Peel and Fabio and Groove Rider. And um, I remember I got so drunk at the first Christmas Radio and Pie I'd been to. I woke up on some stairs in the club where the. I must have had a nap at the, where the party was being held. And I remember Jamie Feakston with a glass of milk reaching down to me with a glass of milk. <laughs> And going, come on, that'll line your stomach. That'll make you feel better. <laughs> I remember taking the milk off Jamie Feakston and going, thanks, Jamie. And and it's, that stayed with me forever. And I haven't seen him since to say thank you. But like a year later, earlier, I'd have been watching uh, Jamie Feakston on Saturday morning kids TV, you know, drinking milk, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so to skip to that, it was quite a dramatic, drastic change. But that's what happens when you're 18, isn't it? Like you don't know what's around the corner. You want adventures, don't you? You want to meet you want to meet whoever you can meet. You want to do whatever whatever life throws at you. I it? love that who might be around the corner is Jamie Feakston with a glass of milk. <laughs> I Brilliant. just think that's incredible. Yeah. Who would have thought that Jamie Feakston was such a nice father figure, oh, like he... taking you under his wing? And oh. yeah. If you're listening to this podcast, Jamie <laughs> Feakston, thank you for the glass of milk 22 years ago. So you've actually started with Hospital Radio at Rookwood Sounds and then moved on to to radio one and 
So as we were talking earlier about the world at the time moving from kind of analogue to digital, I think you're the perfect person to ask about how that affected your work and your life. So when you were first starting out, what, what was the kind of the worst format you had to deal with on radio? Um, well, it would have been CDs and vinyl was... Um was the was the main ones and then mini disc tried to become a thing but mm. proved to be too expensive and fiddly and we just weren't ready for that i think cd was enough of a jump for us <laughs> as a human race um you know we didn't we'd invested in cd players we'd invested in these kind of you know perfectly round disc we weren't ready to switch to a new player and a little <laughs> square disc um so yeah it was those and then when i started in hospital radio and in the bbc actually they were carts they were thing called carts so um you'd have a, a jingle on a separate cart. So when you see the the amazing old pictures of Radio One in the sixties and seventies, and Radio Caroline before it, and you've got the DJs with walls of carts in the background. I love those pictures because on each car there'd be a Steve Wright in the afternoon on one and then on the other one it'd be like traffic and travel, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> You'd have to have a separate car for a separate thing. Um, so that was always a bit of a nightmare um, to, f to fiddle with. And to be honest, mm -hmm. vinyl was always tricky as well on when you did hospital radio shows because um, you had to cue them up, you had to mm. drop the needle on the record in the right place, you had to pre-fade it, you had to listen to make sure that you know the song was starting in the right bit um, of the song and that when you pressed play there wouldn't be too much of a gap between you pressing play and the record actually starting so um, yeah I mean it was a headache I'll be honest I miss it I miss <laughs> queuing up CDs and flicking to track 12 and, but I, you know, I, yeah because I yeah. guess you got into a flow of it I guess by that point it's second nature to you then and you've got this flow going um, I mean in terms of records though like I, I love vinyls but how often would you be like in the middle of a song and suddenly it just goes yeah they would just skip every now and again i mean to be honest the worst would be if you were playing and djing in a live event and and, and the record would skip there because you see the audience looking at you going <laughs> oh my god he's an amateur oh my god he's just having a laugh the record skipped why 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 is he getting paid whereas on the radio if you make a mistake you don't see however many people listening looking at you and going you know you, you don't mm. see it thank god um so um yeah the record would skip occasionally which would be a nightmare but i mean i'm still a vinyl buyer i'm still a vinyl collector although i'm not like you know oh you know gotta buy this first limited edition press 200 quid pressing <laughs> i'm not one of those but um, i still like records um and they don't skip anymore they, mm. I, yeah i think maybe that was a myth i think that you know the classic needle scratch sound like, yeah that, that, not yet nobody, nobody does that like no. only only on like radio competitions i think <laughs> <laughs> DJs never did that. It's really oh. funny because because I never thought that I was anything like my dad until my daughter asked if she could put a record on my record player, and then suddenly I was all over her. Like I like 
just telling her, don't touch it, don't, don't touch the, the middle bit, hold it like this, hold it like this with on the edges, hold the edges, just put it down neatly, just no, 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 just wait a minute. Like, and suddenly I could hear my dad coming through. Right, yeah, yeah, because it wasn't important to you when you were a kid. No. And now it is. And I think it comes down to cost, doesn't it? I think it comes down to when you were a kid, you don't know how much things cost. And now that you're an adult and you probably paid for it, you do know how much things cost and you don't want them you don't want them broken which is kind of fair enough isn't it and there's also that thing that no one seems to know which piece of vinyl is going to be worth 200 pounds in the future or not but every every time my girlfriend's mum finds a record in the attic she's like how much is this one worth hoping that one day (laughs) one day yeah i think especially in the last couple of years like there's been so many stories on the news about vinyl price booms you're right people i mean i've had neighbors come and go We've got um, we've got a cassette here of a recording I made off the radio in the seventies. Do you think it's worth anything? It's like probably not. Like try you know <laughs> if you try taking it to a charity shop, you know then they don't accept things. And it's come to the point now where charity shops don't even really accept. Well, I mean I don't want to talk on behalf of all charity shops. Please go and support them. But I've tried giving CDs to some charity shops, and they're like, we're not mm. going to take them because nobody will buy. That you know that badly drawn boy single, <laughs> yeah, you know, so nobody wants More's it. More's the pity. No, yeah. I same with VHSs. They will not. They they can see you coming a mile off if you turn ah. up with a sack of VHSs. For Britpop and Cool Cymru, was this when you were on hospital radio? Did it? Did that come to the hospital wards? What was the? What was the take on all that? Yeah, it did, Gareth. Um, I mean, I was aware that, you know, the audience listening to hospital radio, uh, uh, they're in hospital, they're ill, so they Mm. need comfort and they need, like, you know, you need music that um, is familiar, I suppose. So I'd play the hospital radio playlist and I'd play bands that I liked at the time. Uh, You know, all the cool bands like Meatloaf and Lighthouse Family. I loved them. (laughs) So I played all of that and and cutting-edge singer-songwriters like Sheryl Crow. You know, I loved all of that. And then I'd mix it in with the Welsh bands that I was into. So yeah, it was I was about 14, 15 doing hospital radio. uh, 14, 15, 16. And so um, there was a label called Angst in Cardiff Mm. and they were would release well they'd go on to release Gorky's Iconic Monkey and Super Furry Animals and also bands like Topper and um, things like that and Melis and Train Athlete Roland and I'd play all of these in between uh, Roxy Music and <laughs> Elton John and it was brilliant it was this like my, show I sounds excellent oh, <laughs> it does, bring it back bring it back yeah I'd love to yeah well I might, uh, yeah, I might have to at some point yeah. <laughs> so you talk about so many of um, kind of these different influences then and also the eclectic playlist you had at your radio show so did you ever make a mixtape for someone I did. Um, I did make mixtapes for friends and for girlfriends, and I would put all my faves on there. Ash and Supergrass and Superfair Animals and things like that, yeah. And some spoken word bits and bobs as well, like, you know, if... Because if, my mum and dad had um, records, like, of, of spoken word poetry and stuff like that, so I'd record lines of that to go, go in between the songs. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Did it ever work with girls? Um, well, I, to be honest, I never made tapes to impress um, girls. I only make 
I'd only make tapes if they were already impressed. You know, I need it. <laughs> I need. I wouldn't have risked giving a tape to somebody, um, you know, cold that I fancied. I would have. I would have waited for a friendship to blossom first. I think. Okay. Um, yeah, I think so. I never made tapes for for, for mates to try and impress a mate. You know, I'd always be mates who were mates already, and so they'd appreciate. <laughs> they'd accept um, the 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 weird music on there. I really, I really miss mixtapes because I, um, you were talking there about not wanting to impress girls. But when I was in year seven, a boy fancied me in class and him and his friend, they created this musical for me on tape wow. with loads of different tracks that they liked. And then they set up like this story about me in between the, the songs and stuff. And at the time, obviously, it was awful. <laughs> it was the most embarrassing thing that anyone has ever done. And they, they just kind of put it in my bag. So I didn't see it until I got home and there was just this cassette there. And I listened to it and I look back now and I think, that was incredible. Yeah. Well, it sounds like they invented the jukebox musical. It does a bit, doesn't it? That's like We Will Rock You, but 10 years before We Will Rock You became a thing. That's so true. Have you still got the tape and do you still occasionally listen to it? No, because I recorded over it because I was so embarrassed by it. And Beric was pricey. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Always taping over everything I could. Oh, uh... yeah. I mean, Bross were playing on Radio (laughs) 1 on the Sunday. I had to record that. But yeah, I do regret recording over it. And I I remember asking him, because we're still in touch, and I remember asking him if he had a copy and he didn't. Oh, it's really sad. I know. Maybe they could recreate it for you one day, because they are nice, and they? And yeah, things like that. I suppose, yeah, things like that. I think we have lost a bit of that magic, haven't we? A bit of that personalised touch. Because making a playlist on Spotify or whatever... It's all well and good, you know, I'm a big fan of it, but you can't, you can't record yourself, can you? You can't mm. put bits of yourself in between the songs or whatever. It has, to mm. be, it has to already exist out there. And those clicks, those recording and pausing clicks between songs, it feels almost like a scrapbook, like you've mm. actually cut and stuck something yourself rather yeah. than it being completely clean and digital. Yeah, yeah true, true. In, it's on on a, a not dissimilar note, the idea of making something for someone, presumably once you started at Radio 1, you just got bombarded with demos yeah, of yeah. bands going like... And did, how did yeah. that change over the years? Like, was it people collaring you in a club and going like, here's my cassette that became, here's my CD that became, yeah. here's my QR code for my website? Like, what was the... <laughs> no. I'm sort of intrigued by that journey. It was exactly that. It was. It was, here's my cassette, here's my CD, here's a card with a QR code on Do it. Do what, that did happen? Yeah, I've still got them. Wow. I've still got a lot of them, yeah. Um, and... It's occasionally it'd be a here's a memory stick with the collection oh, yeah. on, you know. But yeah, QR code would happen. And um, also, I think just, t- you know, technology's moved on so much. Like, the waste that a CD creates is phenomenal. When you think of the plastic and, you know, you can't get rid of it safely unless you know of a <laughs> CD recycling. There is, I mean, there is CD recycling out there, but, you know, normally ends up in landfill, doesn't it? And... Um, yeah, so there was a bit of waste, but um, in terms of, I mean, SoundCloud, all the, you know, all the Dropbox and WeTransfers and all of that, and also 
where I work, BBC, we invented the introducing uploader where mm. people could just upload their tunes for free and let you know say where you were based and hope that somebody would listen to it and like it enough to play it on the radio. So, um, so it did change a bit, but CDs still exist and I still get given CDs. It's still a practical way of sharing music and of making sure the person you want to receive something receive something you know there's <laughs> something quite nice about like having it in your hands i guess is, is there like a preferred way because i remember hearing about how john peel would listen to the cassettes in his car and if he liked it he put it on his passenger seat if he didn't like it he threw it in the back and <laughs> yeah. so then every three months he had to empty the back of his car of cassettes <laughs> oh, but did God. you have like a system of well do you know i remember john peel coming in and out of radio one um on great portland street in london with a massive sack of mail and loading it into his front seat and doing <laughs> and doing exactly that and starting on his journey home and yeah there was always just <clears throat> loads and loads of post um I remember, I mean, when I used to go up to London to do my Radio 1 show, I'd take uh, a suitcase of CDs with me and listen to them on the train on my CD Discman. Um, And um, I remember once I had a CD by a Welsh folk artist and I thought, oh, Bob Harris would like this. I bet Bob Harris on the Folk and Country show on Radio 2 would like him. So I wrote a little post-it note, Bob Harris, and I put it back in my suitcase. I went on the train to London who did I see in Paddington train station but Bob Harris? <laughs> so I go, Bob. And he goes, oh, he's, you know, he's used to it. It's like, oh, yes, hello. I go, hello, my name's Hugh. I work at Radio 1. And he's like, yeah, whatever. And then I, and I said, I've got a CD for you. And he's like, oh, God. Somebody, you know, so I, I, I open my suitcase on the platform in a busy Paddington station. It's full of CDs. There's, there's like probably 70, 80 CDs in there. Some from like major labels and bands you've heard of. Some demos and whatnot. But there's one CD... And he's looking at it going, this guy is clearly <laughs> mad because he's, gonna, he's, he's just going to pick a CD and give it to me. But luckily, on the CD that I want to give him, I've written his name and it says Bob Harris. And, I, and he can see there's no sleight of hand involved. And I bring the spring <laughs> CD out and I can see that he's actually impressed or not impressed, Aww. relieved. Relieved is the word that I'm not a madman about to give him any old CD, but actually, this is for Bob Harris. I don't think he played the CD, definitely not on the radio, not that I know of. I I was really hoping for a and that man was Ed Sheeran. I really was, I I, I was hoping that's where we were going. Oh, I'd have loved that as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, when you say people like Ed Sheeran, like, I mean, people like that, stories like that, I just just think they're fantastic. Mm. The fact Mm. that he worked like so hard, you know, he'd gig all every night of the year he'd sleep on friend sofas and stories like that are just absolutely brilliant and um yeah i love that but it, no that cd wasn't it <laughs> <laughs> but what's incredible about all this though is obviously we've just kind of um revealed the fact that you're resentful and we're, we're presenting you now with this new amazing group you're part of but because of the role that you had at the time, so during your formative teenage years, when you were being exposed to a lot of new influences and experiences, by the very nature of your job at Radio 1, you were also driving it a bit. You were actually creating that environment and mm. those influences that would create Zenials eventually. <laughs> 
Oh, well, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I think if yeah. you're part of something, it's nice being able to contribute, isn't it? More than just reflect. And I mean, I can't sing or make music. So the way I got involved was we started a um, record label. So we started a label called Booby Trap and we put out loads of singles and albums and we did started a label called Am and then start other bits and bobs so i think getting involved in things is is good because and you know you don't you don't think at the time i'm control you know i'm controlling and contributing you're just doing it because you love it don't you and it's only later you realize that other people liked things that you were involved in and that's that's a great feeling you know <laughs> Most of my formative years were spent practicing magic. Um, oh wow! And I don't know if that's a zenial thing, but I was really into magic growing up. Um, no, I, re- I definitely reckon it is a zenial thing because I I'm not a magician. I can't do any of that jazz, but I do still have a Paul Daniels magic set. I mean, that's oh, what yeah. started it all for I me. I have as the Paul well. Daniels magic set. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> and it was it was such an eighties thing because Paul Daniels was on everything. Yeah. I mean, he was because he wasn't just doing magic; he was doing game shows and stuff as well. But he, he was such a personality, and it, it does seem like looking back that magic was a very eighties thing. Yeah, I think you're right. It was glamorous, wasn't it? It was aspirational. Um, I did go and see Paul Daniels in Patalbot on my 13th birthday. Oh. And oh, wow. um, oh, it was amazing. And I also went to see Paul Daniels like two years before he died, playing to like 100 people in London in a tiny little theatre. And he was still brilliant. So, um, yeah, the magic set kick-started it. I think there's a version now, Marvin's Magic is everything mm. now, isn't it? Yeah. Like all the kids are into that. And, um, and Dynamo and people like that. I still go and see, you know, I, I've met Dynamo. He's amazing. Um, in fact, one of my biggest claims to fame is um, giving Dynamo his first ever radio slot because I, I, I said to Radio World, do you know what would be hilarious is an hour of magic on the radio <laughs> and this was clearly a long time ago because they went, yeah, all right, let's do that. <laughs> and so we did an hour of magic on the radio and Dynamo was one of the magicians who came to do um, the magic show. Wow, and uh, so, Yeah, so I think, it, I think you're right. It is a zenial thing and I hope that it hasn't been lost forever. I hope magic makes a comeback. I think you can still amaze kids these days with it because, so my, my kids got interested in the box and, you know, and they wanted to see, basically they were interested in Paul Daniels' magic wand they just wanted to wave the wand about. Yeah. Um, but I did the trick. So he has a trick in that box that is, um, it's a piece of card that's been folded two different ways. And then you can place a playing card in one of the folds. Uh-huh. You say the magic words, you tap it, and then, but then you open the flap that's behind that. So the card has essentially okay. disappeared. Well, you're being kicked out of the magic circle. <laughs> I was going to say, you've just broken a massive rule there. I'm afraid we're going to have to end this interview. Burn the tapes. This is going to have to be just beeped out. I mean, it sounds great, but, though, Essie. Do you want no, to... Don't patronise me. No, 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 I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm trying to visualise it as you explain it. But my... But I did... So I did it for my kids, so my... Um, when I showed it to them, my daughter was six and my son was three. 
and they were just wide-eyed. They they couldn't understand where this card had gone, and right. that feeling was incredible. Yeah, <laughs> no, well, that's the thing. That is the thing about magic. You're right. You just, I mean, it is that feeling of impressing somebody else so mm. yeah you can make a mixtape they might like it or they might like track six or whatever but with a magic uh, trick boom it's like it's instant yeah. like you say and you see the wonder in their eyes uh, i just hope they're not listening to this podcast because they've you just ruined it for them yeah <laughs> 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 but it is an amazing feeling and that, that's I think that's why I liked magic was because it was I mean it was uh, it was healthy as well you pr you had to practice mm. to practice tricks um, and it was a it was a very wholesome hobby I think magic and did you put on a show like was this was this just doing it in your bedroom or did you actually go I'm going Gareth. out there and I'm showing the world well if Gareth if you were a, a little kid growing up in Cardiff in the mid to late 90s you might as you might well have ended up at one of my Houdini parties Houdini. Where, yeah where I, I would be um, employed to go around doing magic shows for uh, for kids and I would do half an hour of entertainment in people's front rooms um, with my with with my magic wand again this is something again i'm thinking of bringing back i might have yes. to um, <laughs> and i loved it because I, I i'd invest all in all these little magic tricks like linking rings and you know all these amazing tricks and i'd go to the shops in london davenport's magic and the charing cross tube station and international magic um on clarkenwell road oh my god i loved it and you know who worked in international magic on clarkenwell road was jerry sadovitz i've heard this yeah yeah, yeah. like amazing um well, one of the world's best magicians. Um, and he, he would just be there, casually doing tricks. So, yeah, I did do magic shows, and um, I'm still available at an affordable price. <laughs> <laughs> As someone who has seen Jerry Sadowitz's show and has seen just how adult his gags are the idea of him introducing children to magic is an almost um, terrifying prospect yeah well that's why i said he's an amazing magician mm. because he is his comedy is controversial um, but his magic is, is he is incredible absolutely level. incredible absolutely so this i think this idea that like magic is a is a zenial thing i absolutely think it really fit. Magic was everywhere. Because as well, you had Paul Daniels. And that was like a showcase for the world's magicians mm. on that TV That's show. That's right, yeah. He was yeah. very welcoming of different magicians yeah. of different cultures. Yeah, he was. So were you, in the, in the 80s and 90s TV battle, were you a BBC family or were you an ITV family? Or were you an S4C family? Are um, you... Oh yeah, we'd be S4C. I've been watching yeah a lot of S4C um, and BBC as well. Noel's uh, House Party, Big Break, Generation Game. We that, that team. Yeah, Mr. Blobby. Yeah. Yeah. See, we were that team. The other the other team is Blind Date Gladiators and You Bet. I and see. We, we yeah. were definitely a BBC family. Yeah, on I a think, Saturday night. Yeah, we were as well. And because Paul Daniels was on the BBC as well, so that was a big one for me exactly um, gladiators i think i watched that a few times but yeah no definitely bbc bbc for life baby yeah were you were you a tech savvy family then as in were your parents quite good at tapping into certain trends that were coming up and and embracing what the 80s and 90s kind of brought with them 
or not. <laughs> if you're asking, did we have Pop-Tarts in the house? <laughs> yes, we did. Oh, um, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and we would microwave those Pop-Tarts uh, of a weeknight. Oh, you had, I mean, the fact you had a microwave. Sorry, not microwave, toast. toast. Sorry, is what I meant. Sorry, I meant toast. <laughs> oh, embarrassing. I meant toast those Pop-Tarts. That's what you do, isn't it? Um yeah, I think so. I mean, my uh, my mm. dad was a writer, so he would uh, he had an Amstrad computer in the house, and on that I would play Run Rabbit Run, and it was a game <laughs> where you had to use the up, down, left, right keys and the space bar to jump. I think it was, <laughs> and it was amazing. It was a green screen, like green graphics on a black screen, and I loved that game. And I was I became obsessed with Run Rabbit Run. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I didn't become, um, I wasn't like mad into computer games or anything because it was kind of just before that boom. I think as Enyals, we didn't really have, the, or did we? Or maybe I was the only one who didn't have those computer games. Did you two have computer games? I, I feel like I was exactly the right age for Nintendo to take off. Okay. Because I'm just that little bit younger. So we were a big Nintendo household. Um, right. With not a Sega in sight. <laughs> Again, like the BBC ITV thing, we really pinned our colours to a mast. Um, yeah, I was definitely yes. a, a Sega person. It's it's interesting, though, what you were saying about your dad getting an, an Amstrad, because that's what happened to me. So um, I'm the eldest, and my dad also bought it for writing, um, but was really... Int- he used to buy the Amstrad magazines, so he mm. did buy a few games and stuff. And I remember I was ill with chicken pox I must have been about eight years old or something and he just bought it and I was up really late because I couldn't sleep because of the itching and he showed me this game called Chucky Egg oh, I don't know if yeah. you remember Chucky Egg yeah oh, I do. Mm. it was incredible the hours I wasted on Chucky <laughs> Egg just just a, just a chicken collecting grain and trying to avoid bumping into the farmer like Amazing. Yeah, it was proper West Walian stuff. <laughs> Just down my street. But yeah, so, so it was that kind of thing. And I think maybe because I had younger siblings, N64 came to the house. We oh, had yeah. Master System, Game Gear, Game Boys. We had all of it. During lockdown, I finally completed Super Mario Brothers 2, which had eluded <laughs> me since... <laughs> since- there was a real like there done. <laughs> wow, what's that on PlayStation? Is it or Sega? Uh, th- th- that's on the Nintendo, okay. like the NES, the proper NES. <laughs> but I did one and th- I did one and three back in the day, but two remained elusive. Wow, uh, <laughs> wow. that's amazing. I'm glad you used uh, lockdown time to good effect, there, guys. Yeah, yeah. If there's one thing from the analog or one from the digital era that you wanted to pass on to your kids, what would they be? Is there anything where you go, oh, yeah, that's worth hanging on to? Well, I'd say keep magic tricks is what I would say, um, because it's a very wholesome, timeless thing, magic. We need more magic now, more than ever, some might say. (laughs) (laughs) And is there anything where you're you're happy to see back in from that era, something where you're going, like, let's leave that in the past? Um... Yeah, well, yeah. Um, I'll tell you what I'd like to leave in the past is telling people that you're going to meet them somewhere at a certain time. 
because <laughs> thankfully, I mean, you know, you could be abroad, you could be in a foreign country, you could be on holiday in a city and go, oh, I'll meet you by the Louvre at 11.30. <laughs> like the panic that things like that would probably get out with people would be horrible. Whereas now you can WhatsApp and text or phone. And it's, it's so I'm, I'm um, vagueness is what I'm leaving oh, in the past. Vague. Vagueness. <laughs> it was always quite a good way, though, of weeding out really tardy friends. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. See you at 12 in this pub and then not be there. Yeah, that's true. If you're not there, then you're out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> So, to end on, we've got some very quick-fire questions. These are either-or that we'll fire through. We, we, we've established that you're a Xeniel, so let's just very quickly establish what type of Xeniel. Um, Blur or Oasis? Oh, that's a face. I'm saying Oasis. Okay. Enemy or Melody Maker? Oh, Enemy, of course. I still miss uh, Enemy. I still wake up on a Wednesday sometimes and go, oh, oh no, nothing to look forward to today. No. Uh, or Smash Hits? Oh, smash hit. I don't think I ever bought luck in. I don't know what that is. <laughs> that was one of mine. It had the um, it had the Simpsons comic strip in it. So we did okay. we didn't have Sky, so that was the my only in for Simpsons. Okay. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, VHS or Betamax? Oh, VHS, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Radio One or Atlantic two five two? Oh, well, I mean, I was Atlantic 252 and Virgin 1215 for a long time, but, um, oh, I mean, Radio 1 for life. <laughs> oh, the, the day I worked out that if I put my radio on a higher shelf, I got Radio 1 was a, was a genuine, <laughs> genuine game-changer in my life. <laughs> my parents moved to the mountains, and I thought I was done for Radio 1. <laughs> Walkman or Discman? Oh, Discman, yeah. That, I mean, that felt like the future, didn't it? Like, I know iPods are cool, but having a CD spinning in your pocket, that's cooler. <laughs> uh, live and Kicking or Gimme Five? Live and Kicking was brilliant. I loved that. Notting Hill or Train Spotting? Oh, Train Spotting is a classic, isn't it? You had to think there, though. Think. Yeah, I, was, I was trying to remember what Notting Hill was, but yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean that was brilliant because Free Sevans was in it, wasn't he? Mm. And he was. Uh, Notting Hill, yeah. See, I, I was more four weddings and a funeral than Notting Hill uh, if I had to pick, but yeah. <laughs> and everything I do, I do it for you. All love is all around. Uh, I'd go Brian Adams. In my 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 impulse says Brian Adams. My instinct says Brian Adams. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Much. Thanks for having oh, me. Thank Cheers. you. Still. Thank you. Cheers. Oh, thanks a million. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was Hugh Stevens. If you want to follow Hugh and find out what he's up to, he's on Twitter at Hugh Stevens. One word: P H in Stevens. Yeah. Um, that was great. I really enjoyed uh, speaking to Hugh. Really good fun. Um, and also the fact that I didn't realise that pretty much everyone I know seems to have had the Paul Daniels magic set. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a real um, zenial <laughs> thing, I think. The, Imagine um, how much money he made from that. He must have made a tonne. Like Debbie McGee's living off that now, isn't she? Yeah. Off the, and and Wizbit was the other thing. I don't know if he made much money off Wizbit. <laughs> The weird thing about the whole uh, magic thing is that speaking to Hugh reminded me 
how much I was into magic as a kid. Mm. And one of the things that I found last week was... So, for the Xenial Dome Twitter page, I took a photo of my fun facts. I'm holding it up on the Zoom to Esther now. That's the... Um, which is, if you never saw a fun facts, it was a file of facts for kids. What a peculiar... Uh, idea for a toy but it, but it was very like you know because there were so many yuppies about when we were growing up and it was a very um kind of money making era they were just gearing us up to becoming businessmen and women <laughs> they were i think the idea was that if your mum or dad had a philofax you could have your fun facts to play with because that's what it is it's like a it's a it's a small file that looks like philofax that you fill with kids stuff but i never I'd never seen a Filofax before I saw this. Why would I? I'd have been eight, you know. Um, but then that's it, and then th- now you're a big businessman, aren't you, Gareth? Now, now I'm a big businessman. <laughs> but the thing that I realised, um, having spoken to Hugh, is that one of the books, the idea was is that you could buy books which had perforated pages and holes that you could then put in your Filofax and look at one of the books that I bought <gasps> as, I guess, an eight- or nine-year-old. It's the Filofax Beginner's Guide to Magic. Wow. And I was um I was reading it just before we came uh we started recording today and they are some of the worst magic tricks <laughs> that I have ever seen. One of them, this one is called magical strength. And I haven't I'll be honest, I haven't gone through because they list the patter that you're meant to say. Yeah. Um so you've got to wade through that. But it appears to be Get an audience member to try and prise your fists apart. If you sort of, if you imagine one potato, two potato in your fists. But here's the sneak: you've put your thumb inside your upper fist, oh. so when they try and separate your fists, they can't, or you'll break your thumb. I don't know. <laughs> Look at this trick here. This trick is called water on the elbow, and the trick appears to be. Get a member of the audience up out of their seat, bring them on stage, and have a small sponge concealed in your hand, and then touch their elbow and go whoop, water on the elbow, and then squeeze squeeze a sponge next to them. I don't think that's a magic trick. I, I reckon we should tweet a photo of that because the the illustration of it looks absolutely insane. I don't know if you can conceal a sponge on on stage in your <laughs> seven year old hand. Also. Um, as I mentioned online, we took a photo of the fun facts to put on our Twitter account. Um, I can't put many photos of it up because the amount of personal data contained <laughs> in this is absolutely amazing. It really does because there's like a sort of fill in all your information and it's like favourite teacher, date of birth, parents' date of birth, friends' date of birth. What bike have you got? Which was a good one. <laughs> Your doctor's name, your school address, it's all there. So, yeah, if you um, if you had a fun fact, you don't know where it is, track it down now, because that is a security nightmare. I don't think I had one. I think my sister had one. I, I don't know. I, I think maybe I was, I was already on top of everything. I didn't need one. <laughs> <laughs> um, we should say thank you very much uh, if you have got in touch um, since... The first episode went out with Nish Kumar. Thank you for the uh, emails, tweets, all the ways you can get. No one got in touch on MySpace, did they? No. That was pretty disappointing. But thank you very much. Uh, if you did get in contact with us in one of various ways, um, do you have any messages you would like to go through, SF? I do. So I had a message on Twitter from Kyle who said, um, so in response to what Nish was saying about X-Rental VHSs, 
Kyle apparently loved getting ex-rental VHSs as well. And he remembers going into the video shop. Um, his was Hopkins in Portalbot. Uh, so <laughs> shout out to Hopkins. I imagine it's shut now. Um, <laughs> and he saw the Last Boy Scout for the fiver. I can't remember the Last Boy Scout. Do you remember that film? No, that doesn't ring a bell. No. The, the name rings a bell, but I don't think I've seen that. No, so we got that for a fiver. A fiver for an ex-rental VHS sounds a bit expensive. Because I imagine ex-rental VHS is at, at most two ninety nine. But I think they wanted, they didn't want to put something in your way for you to keep renting. So I think they had to keep the price probably just enough to warrant you taking it out of the shop, maybe. You see... If the the whole fa- the whole fun facts training has put you in good stead, and yeah. you've got more of a business head on you than I have. Other things from uh, Nish's episodes which seem to resonate with people. Victoria got in touch to say she also had a TV, which you had to tune with a dial. Um, <laughs> I didn't have a TV; you had to tune with a dial. But I did have a TV where the channels, the TV wouldn't remember what the channels were, so you had to do it pressing this, pressing the various buttons in a complicated way every time you turned it on. Yeah, which became a sort of muscle memory effect. Yeah. Let me read you this message we had from Andy. Nish saying he remembers walking past a wimpy and that making his mother depressed really hit home for me. My mother was fuming that there was a wimpy on Canterbury High Street and would always make the same comment every time we walked by. I'm sure she was convinced that wimpy was solely responsible for spreading mad cow disease. (laughs) (laughs) She'll deny that, but the feeling of disappointment that it was here will never go away. Enjoyed the show, especially the story about queuing for two hours to meet Chris Barry. I know I would have done the same just to meet Gordon Brittus. <laughs> I'm really fascinated. First of all, before we carry on, I think we have to say, Wimpy did not cause BSE. No. Because Wimpy does no. still exist, and I don't yes. want... I, I'm not... Wimpy and BSE, not related. No. That friendly beefeater character... Who yes. was, would not have let that happen? No, definitely not. I mean, I wonder if maybe his mum saw Wimpy in a news report once and then it just stuck. And it just spiralled from there. <laughs> I'm really fascinated because I loved Wimpy when I was a kid. Wimpy was the one that parents liked, I always thought, because mm. it wasn't McDonald's and they gave you a knife and fork. So yeah. I always thought that Wimpy was the sort of vaguely classy one. You're, so you're, you're tr- talking about this as if people had a choice. I mean, we didn't have a choice in Aberystwyth. It, it was just wimpy. It was just wimpy. Did you, didn't you have like a national milk bar? Oh, there was a national milk bar. Oh, let's hope that comes up in an episode because I could do a whole series on the national milk bar. If I if I won a lot of money on the lottery, I would restart them. <laughs> My memory of going on holiday to that area of Wales as a kid was going to the National Milk Bar, which we should explain to anyone who's not been to a National Milk Bar, is a sort of fast food chain from, I don't know, the 1500s. What was the deal with the National Milk Bar? <laughs> it, yeah, it felt very old-fashioned. It was like a tea room cum diner. Very strange. So it would have scones and dining booths. Yeah, it looked... <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's it. It looked like... It was sort of modelled on a sort of Happy Days style diner, but all the black and white photos around the side had women in Welsh costume in them. <laughs> yes. That was the, it was a real mi- yeah. like clash of cultures. So in Aberystwyth, you had National Milk Bar and Wimpy. Yeah, that's all you needed. That's all well, you needed. Well, you're always using knives and forks then. You're absolutely fine. <laughs> 
we we are adept at using cutlery yes <laughs> um so if you've got any uh comments on today's show or last week's show or anything you can email us at the zeniel dome zeniel is spelled with an x at hotmail.com or you can get in touch with us on twitter or on myspace or on Instagram, where our name is slightly different. So on Instagram, don't put the in there. It doesn't like the. I think it's time to reveal who we've got on the next episode, and it's the lovely and hilarious comedian, Jessica Foster Q. And I am so excited. I mean, I'm excited about every episode, let's face it, but Jessica Foster Q, I could listen to her all day. Like, just her voice, I find quite soothing. I love her accent. And I'm really looking forward to hearing about her experiences um, of growing up as a Zaniel. Yeah, it's going to be great. So uh, you'll find that in exactly the same place as you found this next week. Goodbye. (laughs) 